Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of issues, trends, and developments in future fuels, vehicles, and transport energy. I'm your host, Tammy Klein. I'm founder and CEO of Transport Energy Strategies. And with me today is Professor David Rapson. David, welcome to the program. Thanks, Tammy. It's great to be here. <laughs> so let me tell you a little bit about uh, David. The, for those of you who are watching and listening, David is an associate professor in the Department of Economics and director of the Davis Energy Economics Program at the University of California at Davis. His research focuses on energy and environmental economics, industrial organization, and applied microeconomics. Rapson studies how firms and consumers make decisions primarily about energy use, which is what we're going to talk about today, and what this implies for optimal regulation and government policy. Current academic research topics include electrification of the economy, electric vehicles, electricity markets, energy efficiency, climate policy, and regulation. And his research has appeared everywhere, basically. <laughs> uh, yeah, the Economic Review, Science, Nature, and other academic journals. So David, great to have you back on the program. The last time you were on, we talked a lot about uh, fuel economy. And this time, we're going to talk about a study that you recently completed um, with colleagues called Low Energy Estimating electric vehicle, and electric vehicle Electricity Use. So can you tell us about the key findings from that study? And um, was there anything that surprised you and colleagues um, about uh, the analysis? Sure, Tammy. Well, first of all, I need to give a tip of the cap to my co-authors who um, I've been working on this project for a few years with them. It takes a long time to get a big collaboration like this off the ground. So Fiona Berlig at University of Chicago, Jim Bushnell, my colleague at UC Davis, and Catherine Wolfram uh, from UC Berkeley, who's currently working in the Biden administration, uh, are all co-authors on this study as well. And yeah, we started this study several years ago when we realized that there was a big gap in what we understand about electric vehicles, which is how much energy they use. And in particular, we thought that the blind spot um, for both, you know, for academia, industry, and policymakers was how much electric vehicles are being charged at home. And the reason why that's a blind spot is that for the vast majority of electric vehicle owners, they plug in their vehicle into what is a master electricity meter, which means that the electricity that's coming out of that plug is metered with the rest of their household usage. It's not on an independent meter. And so there's no direct measurement of how much electricity they're using. And so what we did was we got a sample of 10% of uh, electricity customers in the state of California, and we got their meter data. So this is hourly meter reads over a four-year period from 2014 to 2017. And we matched that at the address level with uh, vehicle registration data. So we actually know for every household when an electric vehicle shows up, when it's registered with the state of California. And what we do is something empirically is very simple. We just look at how electricity use in the household changes before, before and after the EV arrives. And what we find is that 
Um, the average EV consumes about 2.9 kilowatt hours per day, which is dramatically lower than what the state uses for its um, for a variety of policies. And the reason why there's that big difference is because, as I said before, nobody was directly measuring this number, and so the state needed to use estimates. And what they what they did was they took um, their estimate came from uh, dedicated EV meters. So some, a very small number, um, over the time period of our study, it was hundreds of EVs out of hundreds of thousands statewide, um, had their own dedicated meter. And that means that, you know, whatever electricity is coming out of that meter, um, is going directly to the EV and it can be measured directly. And the state basically said, okay, well, we don't have, a direct measure for, for all EVs, but we do for some. So let's just assume that the electricity that's being used for this small number of EVs with dedicated meters is reflective of what's used by all of the other EVs. And it turns out that those that population is very selected. Uh, and you can kind of envision why that might be. Who would be investing in a dedicated meter, which costs uh, quite a bit of money? Well, it might be somebody who is very wealthy, or they have a certain type of car, or they have certain, um, you know, they're very excited about having an EV and are engaging, you know, in all the different dimensions of that experience. And it turns out that they charge their EVs at home, you know, two to three times as much as the average EV owner in our sample. Um, so this, you know, has lots of implications, I think, for policy. Uh, we started this study looking at it from an electricity consumption perspective, uh, which is important in its own right for, you know, LCFS credits. There's a low carbon fuel standard in California. And, um, you know, these credits can go to residential electricity use for EVs. Um, and so, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars exchange hands as part of that program. And so it's important to have this um, ac accurately measured, which, you know, we show that it hasn't been, uh, at least uh, in over the period that we were studying. And, uh, you know, the main object we were looking for was electricity. But of course, you know, electricity is converted into vehicle miles traveled. And so what we also did was, um, you know, try to figure out what this implies for EVMT. Uh, electric vehicle miles traveled. Mm -hmm. um, and that has been, you know, as I think you, you've you seen, somewhat of a controversial uh, aspect of the paper, which I'm happy to, to discuss. Yeah. Well, first I want to ask you, so were you all surprised at the 2.9 that the discrepancy was such that it was? Yes, we were. We were. I mean, this this is really a very low uh, amount of electricity consumed for EVs. Um, and we were expecting it to be, um, you know, we thought that these dedicated meters were probably uh, a little bit selected, that they were probably going to show higher electricity consumption than the average uh, EV, but we didn't expect it to be, you know, two to three times as high. So yes, we, we were definitely surprised by these results. And actually that caused us to take, you know, several months of, really, um, you know, making sure that this result is correct, doing tons of robustness checks, 
And, um, you know, in the end, we're, we're very confident that this is an accurate measure in our sample of what people are using at home. And, you know, there are a couple cool features of this that, that help us to um, have confidence in the results. Um, you know, if you look at the paper, we do what's called an event study, which basically shows the average usage before an EV comes and then the average usage after. And we see very flat pre-adoption consumption and very flat post-adoption consumption with just a jump up equivalent to 2.9 kilowatt hours per day when an EV arrives. So the flatness on, on either side of that jump is really helping uh, give us confidence in the results. And what we also see is that the charging is happening almost entirely at night, which is when you would ex expect mm -hmm. it to happen at home. Yeah, right. So, you know, the, the uh, usage kind of ramps up in the late evening and peaks probably around midnight, and then it drops off, uh, you know, through uh, the middle of the night. And during the daytime, we see no change, basically, in electricity consumption, which is comforting to us from an empirical perspective, because it means that, you know, the other types of confounders that you might be concerned about for a mm -hmm. study like this would be a result of households changing their behavior at the same time or even caused by an EV arriving, but not, not through uh, you know, changes in electric vehicle usage, but through you know, other appliances or electricity use sources. And we see none of that. We see that the consumption is basically unchanged during the waking hours. So we really think that what we're seeing is the effect of EVs being added to these meters. So um, you, uh, one of the things that the study talks about that you just kind of uh, indicated a little bit earlier is that um, not only are EVs, you know, they're, they're charging at a lesser rate at that 2.9 kilowatt hour, but they're also being driven less than a comparable, you know, gasoline uh, internal combustion engine vehicle. So what's behind all of that um, in, in your view? Did your colleagues, did you and your colleagues, are there, are there theories behind why that's happening? Yeah, um, absolutely. And first, let me just tell you how we get from the household number to yeah. an EVMT number, because those steps actually, you know, help us to think about what might be going on. So we do two things. We know which type of car is, um, is being charged at each household from the DMV records. And so we know the fuel economy of every car. And so we mm -hmm. convert the kilowatt hours into miles traveled using that fuel economy measure. And we have a lot of confidence about that. And then we scale that up um, to account for away from home charging because Obviously, these EVs are not necessarily just being charged at home. So we're seeing only a partial um, energy supply to those vehicles. They're also potentially charging away from home, and we don't observe that. So what we did to account for away from home charging was we went to the best public source of data that we could find, which was reported um, commercial charging under the low carbon fuel standard program. So these numbers are um, reported to the Air Resources Board in California in exchange for credits. So there's a really large incentive for commercial charging stations 
to report their charging to the ARB so that they can get roughly 20 cents a kilowatt hour for every unit that goes into a vehicle. So this is a very big, to, to put that into perspective, you know, the average electricity price in California is, is very high, but it, it's about, you know, 16, 17 cents a kilowatt hour. So they're getting more than the retail price of electricity in LCFS credits. Um, So there's a real incentive to report through this channel. So we take those numbers and we basically say, okay, let's scale it up a little bit because maybe there's some charging that's not being reported. Um, But then we're going to scale up our estimates based on on that. And we're just going to assign all of that to battery electric vehicles which of course is another assumption. And so once we do all of that, what we find is that our research implies that battery electric vehicles over this period, 2014 to 2017, mm-hmm. are driven about 6,700 miles a year. This is compared to 9,800 for gasoline-powered cars. Mm-hmm. And plug-in hybrid electrics are driven 1,700 miles a year on electricity. Okay, so they can be driven much more on gasoline, but I think what what we care about here is how much they're being driven on the electric drivetrain. And we find that that that's very, very low. So so people who own plug-in hybrids are using, you know, are using the gasoline function a, a lot. And yeah, so, and within the battery electric category, there's also heterogeneity. So Tesla drivers are charging a lot and- you know, their VMT is, you know, closer to the gasoline average, closer to 10,000. Yeah, Um, I found that, I found that interesting too, that that is a separate category, that they are closer on par with the gasoline vehicle. Yeah, yeah, it it is pretty interesting. And and that raises a, a really interesting question. So, you know, you asked before why this might be happening Mm -hmm. and, you know, we've gotten a few, uh, a few different, um, you know, flavors of pushback on this result. And one of them is- I'm going to ask you about that later. <laughs> yeah. Well, so we'll, let's talk about one of them now, which, mm-hmm. is, which is that, hey, this is all about battery capacity. And, mm-hmm. you know, in your period of study, 2014 to 2017, uh, the battery capacity of EVs was pretty low, which means they had low range and they're not going to be charging all that much. But that's changing rapidly. And one of the main exceptions to that is Tesla's. And what we see is that Tesla's are being charged a lot more in our sample. So we do though have another car in the sample with high battery capacity and that's the Chevy Bolt. Uh, sorry, the Chevy Bolt. So the Chevy Bolt. <laughs> I guess it's easy was, to mix them up. <laughs> yeah, easy to mix them up. The Chevy Bolt also has a battery capacity that's very high but it actually looks much more like a Nissan Leaf in terms of how, how it's being charged. So there's this question, you know, is that battery capacity hypothesis what's going on? Mm-hmm. Well, if you look at Tesla's, yeah, it kind of looks like that might be it, but maybe Tesla drivers are just different, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe they're, you know, the car enthusiasts that are going to be driving their car a lot more. So I think there's still some mysteries uh, to unpack here. So if EVs are complements to gasoline cars and they're not subs- substitutes for them. So the, the, when I read the paper, I was like, okay, um, so what does that say about the huge you know, investments, all of the policymaking you know, that is 
happening at the state level and that is about to happen at the federal level. You know, the huge investments by the car companies, by third-party charging companies, states, localities, the utilities are involved, the federal government is getting, going to get more involved. What does it say about all of those, those, you know, those investments and the policymaking that's, that's going to happen? And, and what does it say about the, the trend toward electrification uh, in the U.S. in general? Or, or can there be much that can be said at, at this point? Right. Well, you, you threw out a couple terms that I just want to make sure are, are defined for the listener, which are subsidies mm-hmm. and complements. Right. So I think the vision of transportation electrification, which is, you know, you clean up the electric grid and you get people to drive electric cars, right. is one of substituting Correct. electric cars yeah. for mm-hmm. gasoline cars. But one of the hypotheses that our research has has brought up is that, well, it may be the case that electric vehicles are complements to gasoline cars. And by that, we mean, you know, you might have a multi-car household that is going to buy an electric vehicle because they want to be um, environmentally friendly, they care about the environment, um, or any other number of reasons, but that car is just going to be part of their vehicle portfolio. And they're going to drive it for certain uses, maybe small local trips, um, but they're not going to drive it as much as they would um, one of their, you know, gasoline cars of the past. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense, it, it really matters for the vision of transportation electrification, whether EVs are seen by consumers as complements or substitutes. And one of our hypotheses, and we're actually testing this now in, um, you know, more recent data, and we, we can see the entire vehicle portfolio that mm-hmm. a household uh, owns. And we can see, you know, is this a situation where EVs are, you know, part of a big portfolio and taking just a small slice of the VMT, or are they replacing gasoline cars outright? Um, We're not quite there yet, but Mm -hmm. uh, I think that, you know, early indications are are that they are at least for some households complements. So, yeah, what does this mean for policy? Well, um, again, I think that's unclear. Um, you know, eventually this vision requires that most of the VMT is displaced um, from gasoline to electric. And to the extent that's not happening, I think we should all care why. Um, is it be- just because of battery range and um, range anxiety that might be associated with inadequate charging infrastructure? That, that might be the case. Um, it might also be just a selection issue that the people who are buying cars uh, over this period are just different. They've got they're wealthier, um, which we have seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got a big car portfolio, and they're just kind of dipping their toe in the water. But maybe in a few years, the technology will be such that um, they'll feel comfortable just buying an EV outright and getting rid of their gasoline cars. And I don't think we know yet you know, how that's all going to play out. So what kinds of, you know, yes, all of this is, is going to play out. And I asked about what it says about the existing policies, but what kinds of policies do you think, um, you know, states, localities, the federal government should be, um, you know, considering to facilitate electrification, if at all? In the past podcast, we talked about fuel economy. 
and the the notion of you know replacing fuel economy with a carbon tax that still does not seem politically <laughs> saleable um, in in the U.S. Uh, at this point, although there's certainly a lot more discussion um, and and advocacy you know about it. Um, so, what kinds of policies do you, do you think uh, the government, as from a from an economist point of view? Um, should be considering? And are there other transport energy policies that would be better to achieve the aim, not just of electrification, because the point of electrification is about, you know, reducing uh, and eliminating air pollution and reducing and eliminating, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and meeting, you know, overall climate goals. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, um, you know, electric vehicle advocates like to point to Norway as an example, yes. where Norway has had great success in getting people to adopt electric vehicles. Yes. And I really like that example as well, because it highlights one of the main points that I think is overlooked by people in the U.S. now who are, who are thinking about this, uh, thinking about EV policy, is that Norway didn't subsidize EVs. Correct. Right? Yes. Norway added massive taxes to gasoline cars and made them more expensive. Precisely. And I think that this highlights just one of the main points that I want to get across to anybody who has influence in forming these policies or just cares about, you know, transportation emissions reductions. I think that we have two categories of policies. We've got carrots and we've got sticks. And because of the intransigence of the political opposition that has been facing people who want to get a carbon price in there, either through tax or through cap and trade, people who really care about this issue have become basically desperate. And I can understand why, because there has not been enough climate action. Yeah. And so the question has kind of shifted from what should we do to what is feasible. And it turns out that what's feasible is carrots. Mm -hmm. And this leaves us in a situation where, okay, that's what can be done. And I'm, I'm sure that will have some effect. If you pay people enough money, they're going to adopt EVs. There's no question about that. And if you clean up the electric grid, those EVs are going to pollute less than gasoline cars. And those are good things. But there's also a question of costs and incentives. And so my concern um, with going with the carrot-only approach is it doesn't penalize people who are making polluting decisions. And I think we really need to do that. And the Norway example is, you know, a really great case study in penalizing the polluting good. That creates the right incentives. Yeah. If all we do is subsidize the greener good, we're still not you know, making it more costly to pollute. And my fear is that that policy is going to be less effective than people hope, that this might not end up leading to the carbon abatement that is, you know, pretty much the whole purpose of, of this exercise, or at least it's, it's the, one of the main motivating factors. And so, I, yeah, I really think that um, in the U.S. in particular, where there's such divisiveness and so much opposition uh, you know, on either side of the aisle, that this is a tricky situation. You know, it's climate change is a collective action problem. And right now it's kind of being fought in a partisan way. 
And I'm concerned that if the parties don't get together and, and use this as an opportunity to cross the aisle, to come up with policies that we know will work, um, like putting a price on pollution, like adding some sticks and not just carrots, um, then we're going to end up in a situation where 10 years down the road, we might be still seeing very high carbon emissions. And, and I think that would be a real lost opportunity because people do care a lot about this issue and, and we want to get it right. And I should also just add that um, you know, opportunities for bipartisanship on this issue, I think, are growing. We've mm-hmm. seen declarations by the API, the American Petroleum Institute, mm-hmm. and the Chamber of Commerce that they're open to uh, open to a price on carbon. Now, you know, their opening overture might be a little bit lower than environmentalists, <laughs> and I would want. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think we need to consider the long game here. It's not just about you know throwing a couple hundred billion dollars um, as Biden's infrastructure plan does towards electric vehicles. I think we have to get the incentives right. We have to get people who are not currently enthusiastic about EVs to become enthusiastic. You know, the best-selling cars in the United States are pickup trucks, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know... People love their F-150s. It's 5 of the vehicle market standing on its own, just the F-Series. It's amazing. Exactly. And so, yeah, there. you know, this is, this is an issue where I think we need to... Um, bring more people on board and use it as as an opportunity for bipartisanship, which unfortunately right now is very difficult to do. So, you know, I'm an academic, I'm in the ivory tower, and I'm just looking at this, what incentives are these policies creating and does it provide a pathway to success? And I think the current plan is a very risky one. Yeah. You know, what you're saying about Norway is is so incredibly um, true because this is something that I've looked at um, as a as a research analyst, you know, what are the policies and, and what does the market look like? And as you're saying, I mean, in Norway, they tax vehicles by not only CO2 emission, but by NOx or, or nitrogen oxide um, emissions. And so that that just standing on its own, just like you said, creates, you know, has created a powerful incentive and they do other things too, you know, HOV access, you know, free parking, but that's not the big driver. The, the pricing uh, differential is, is the, is the driver. And, you know, there's been lots of talk, you know, not just about Norway, but about other uh, European countries. And, and there's been a real takeoff of EV sales in the pandemic. And there's reasons for that. There are CO2 standards that took effect uh, last year in the EU. And actually, it's not just that policy, the fuel economy related policy, but it is that many of the member states, I'd say at least, I want to say 10, but it's probably closer to seven, also price vehicles by the CO2. They tax them based on CO2 emission. The lower the CO2, the less, you know, the vehicle tax for registration, for continuation of ownership, things like that. And I think those things, and they offer more subsidies too, but I think it's that sort of stick, as you say, that I think has really, that and the CO2 standards have really driven the uptake in the EU. And I think people don't really, really get that. Um, and, and, it's, and it's really important because that's why this is, is happening. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Tammy. And I want to riff off that just for a second, which is, do we want more cars on the road or do we want fewer cars on the road? And if we subsidize cars, and that's all that we do, even if it's just clean cars, we're promoting more cars on the road. And I don't think that's what we want to do. We want to have fewer cars on the road. So making the polluting ones more expensive is a really great way to do that. And that will have you know, spillover effects as well on, on other externalities that we care about, like congestion on the road. Mm-hmm. People spend a ton of time in traffic and that's very costly to society. In fact, people who've looked into this, you know, that's by far the biggest externality um, associated with driving cars. It, it's, it's the time lost in traffic jams mm-hmm. um, and, you know, followed by, uh, um, followed by local pollution and the health damage of that health damage yeah. of that, right? So climate change is kind of the one that we all care about. But like a lot of these other externalities, as you mentioned, are super important. And getting fewer cars on the road, I think is a great goal. Yeah. You know, yeah, there's this whole um, avoid, shift, improve, you know, framework that's been around for years and years and years when it comes to, you know, managing transport energy, um, air pollutant emissions, and now um, greenhouse gas emissions. And I feel like the the current slate of policies, like we're not leveling with the public. The public really has no incentive to avoid or shift um, its own uh, behaviors. But I think you're seeing this more and more. I'm seeing it t- this in the media. I'm seeing it, you know, this week with regard to the wealthy and you know <laughs> their their CO2 emissions. You know, like we're not going to be able to outrun that. Um, you know, for forever. I mean, there has to be, you know, at some point, um, carrots are nice, but but the sticks really are the ones that really compel the the behavior change. And we're really not leveling with the public that that's really what's going to be required. People are going to need to get more conscious about what they're doing and how they're doing it. Um, you know, if we want to meet these these targets, yeah, and the current current slate of policies don't really do that. I mean, I always joke that, you know, I will not take any policy seriously, you know, until we see a change in the, in the gas tax. I mean, of all the things that have been proposed, you know, $174 billion and this and that and the other, no one's talking about the gas tax, which has not been raised, you know, in, you know, 30 years, almost 30 years. It is absolutely incredible that that has been allowed to persist you know, um, but, uh, but here we are. I mean, there just, there needs to be some kind of, of um, incentive for the public to change the, the behavior. Um, and, and I don't really see it uh, myself as an analyst in, in the, with, with what we're seeing now. Yeah, I, it, it, it really doesn't give a lot of cause for hope right now in the, <laughs> on the current trajectory, but, um, you know, this is why, you know, there was a, there was a Twitter exchange the other day about, you know, have environmental economists done, you know, done a good job advocating for good policies because it appears as though, you know, people are not really listening to environmental economists when it comes to these climate change Mm -hmm. mitigation prescriptions. Um, but you know, I think we have been beating the drum on incentives and maybe we've been ineffective in that, Um, But I really think that effective climate policy is going to consider 
the incentives that are being created by the policy. Mm-hmm. And current policies are kind of ignoring that. Mm-hmm. And, and it reminds me of one other thing that that um, is often overlooked that, that I want to just mention here, because I think it's so important. You know, this is a global problem, which everyone knows, but people mostly are thinking about domestic solutions and domestic emissions. And really, you know, you can bring U.S. carbon emissions to zero, and still the world has a huge problem on its hands because developing countries are getting wealthier, yes. which is great. We're bringing out of people out of poverty worldwide, which is fantastic. But what happens when people get wealthier is they consume more energy. And so we really need to think about what is going to work globally. And this vision of renewable electricity and electric vehicles you know, I'm not sure that that's the best fit for sub-Saharan Africa. <laughs> like, it's, you know, it's just not clear that um, that the electric grid is going to become reliable enough and robust enough to um, service those needs in developing countries. And the other thing is, if the U.S. were to snap its fingers and get off of oil, then the global oil price would drop dramatically And that creates a a big incentive for these developing countries to get their energy needs from the cheapest source, which, you know, oil is definitely going to be cheap for these countries going forward. So we really need to think more broadly um, about, you know, what what can we do in the United States and in the developed world to model policies that can be then adopted by developing countries? and. That's one of the reasons why cost is so important. We can't just be implementing extraordinarily expensive programs for climate change uh, mitigation. I mean, because these developing countries are not going to be wealthy enough to do the same thing. And, you know, maybe we drive costs down enough for these technologies to be exportable. But um, I, I think right now we're going down a road that's kind of feasible in the U.S., but not necessarily going to be effective and not necessarily going to be exportable. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And I think there's another wrinkle to that, which is um, for many of these very same countries, the dependency and the interlinkage, and this is is another podcast, but but I've seen it and I've worked in, in, in some of these very same countries but there's a lot of economic dependency on the state oil company. So that, that raises other issues where it can be very hard to, if not difficult and impossible to kind of uh, dislink, I guess, um, um, with um, the, um, you know, the, the economic dependency that it, that, um, and the benefit that the state oil company provides uh, to, you know, the, the, the people um, of, uh, of a country, but that's another podcast. <laughs> um, but it's, but it's, but it is an issue and, um, yeah. And I think the areas to watch are, you know, it's going to be parts of Asia, but I think it's really going to be Africa, um, where you're seeing a lot of countries, uh, living standards improving and, um, you know, vehicle miles travel, you know, really starting to increase people get cars you know, so on and so forth. So yeah, this is really the solutions that we're thinking about here in the West really um, aren't necessarily transportable um, to those countries. And so what does, you know, what does, what is, what are the implications of that, you know, um, and all that. But I wanted to ask you last, last question before we close. So you mentioned some reaction to, to the paper, um, 
a little bit earlier. What has been, you know, in, in more depth uh, reactions from policymakers, from, from other colleagues in the community? Um, what are you hearing in terms of feedback on the paper? Right. Well, it, it's been kind of a mixed bag. So, um, you know, on the one hand, uh, a lot of people kind of yawn and say, oh, this is completely irrelevant because this was old data, you know, 2014 to 2017 is just, you know, too long ago uh, to be relevant now. And other people are, you know, getting out their pitchforks and... <laughs> You know, You're getting into, death threats. Calling into question <laughs> the integrity of researchers. And, you know, it's wow. um, it is very interesting to see this because you know we don't have a horse in this race, and even the the VMT questions that ended up making all the headlines, they weren't the purpose of the paper. They just right. happened to be one of the implications that fell out of it. And we thought, you know, we can't really write this paper without connecting the dots in some way there. And, you know, I think there are a lot of vested interests right now uh, behind electric vehicles, and there's a lot of momentum behind them. And, you know, that, that's great because I think they are going to be a very important technology. But if there are blinders on, uh, you know, to, to the possibility that these might not be the, you know, the silver bullet, um, I, I think that's a real challenge. And, and we also want to promote among academia. Um, in particular, just, you know, honest, straightforward scientific research. And we were very open about the possible reasons why, uh, why this result might have occurred. And we're going to test those hypotheses in a, in a paper that, that hopefully will come out in the next year or so. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that a lot of the opposition felt a little bit um, dogmatic, I guess, a little mm -hmm. bit um, disinterested in actually discovering what's going on, and rather, you know, it was positioned in the political domain where this result could create opposition to um, policies that that certain people are advocating for, um, and you know that definitely wasn't our intention at, at, at all. But I think we do need to inform ourselves and. Um, I think we should, you know, allow that process to to happen. And um, yeah, the, the opposition was was pretty strong among some circles. But honestly, I think um, you know there are lots of smart people out there who understand the amount of uncertainty that remains around this entire vision of transportation electrification. And I think that um, you know those people also uh, saw this paper and appreciated that it raises some real questions uh, that, that should be answered, you know, in future research. This is mm -hmm. by no means the end of any path. This is just, you know, one step on trying to understand this, this what was a massive blind spot um, mm -hmm. earlier. And, and, and that actually reminds me, you know, the OEMs, the, the car manufacturers, actually have the answer to this question themselves. They know through telemetry how much electric vehicles are being charged and used. And so, you know, while researchers and policymakers are trying to estimate these important variables through research, um, you know, another possible way to resolve this uncertainty is just to simply mandate that the OEMs share these data with regulators, which could be done in a way that, you know, 
doesn't violate any confidentiality. Uh, you know, this, I, I think there's a, a real case for the public good mm-hmm. being promoted by, uh, by the OEM sharing these data. And I would fully, you know, support that, uh, even if what it shows is that, hey, you know, what, what we find is not representative of the whole. Um, or not representative of what's going on in 2021, which, which very well may be the case. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's been it's been an interesting uh, interesting ride. Well, there should be academic freedom, I think, um, <laughs> and room for um, room for scientific discussion and academic discussion uh, and, and uh, debate. Um, so I'm, I'm all in favor. <laughs> I'm all in favor of that as a totally non-academic <laughs> uh, person and observer. So that's the show. Uh, thanks everyone for listening and watching uh, today. I wanna thank Dave so much for being on the show again and talking to us um, about this really, really important paper. Great to have you back. Hope you come back again as um, this research adventure uh, continues. (laughs) All right. And if you're looking for more analysis on transport energy issues, head to my website, transportenergystrategies.com. You can sign up for a free biweekly newsletter that'll sort of keep you posted on research such as this um, and other things that are going out there in the world of transport energy. Um, And thanks again for listening.